It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your host today. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. We continue our conversations. It's been such a great past few weeks. I, I, I love... Um, the start of the year when we get to talk to all the fabulous candidates that are on the ballots and a reminder that the primary election is coming up less than two weeks, Tuesday, February 21st. And we are going to start, uh, continue actually, our conversations with candidates running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. We have two guests joining us today. For the first half of the show, we're going to talk with Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge Janet Protasewicz. She is running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the second half of the show, We'll talk with former Wisconsin Supreme Court member Dan Kelly. So let's get the conversation going. We don't want to hear from me. We want to hear from our candidates. So um, kicking us off today for the first half, we have, here I am, going to nail the name again, um, Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge Janet Janet Protasewicz. Hello, Janet. Hello. How are you? It's wonderful to have you. I am good. How are you doing today? I am good, and I am absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you for having me as a guest on your show. We are so happy to have you, and I want to first. I want to tell everyone a little bit about you. You are currently a judge with the Milwaukee Circuit Court. You've been elected twice to that position since 2014. You spent the previous 25 years as an assistant district attorney. Wow. 25 years. Thank you for that. Um, you also worked as an adjunct um, adjunct law professor at UW-Marquette, and you're a graduate of UW-Milwaukee and Marquette Law School. And I think an important factor about you, you worked your way through college and law school, um, reaching the judge, the judgeship, you know, starting from a working class background. Um, tell us a little bit more about you and why you're running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Thank you. So last April, I started thinking about this race and started talking to people about it. I knew how high the stakes were going to be. And I knew that change and common sense had to come back to our Supreme Court. And that's why I decided to run. It's time to get rid of the extremism. It's time to get rid of the partisanship. It's time for change. It's time for common sense. It's time for their to be a chamber where there's no thumb on the scale, where people can come in and have their case heard fairly without any respect to, you know, who somebody knows, who somebody's contributed funds Mm -hmm. to. It's just so absolutely critically important. And then I looked at the fact that all of the issues that we care about, and when I say all of the issues, I mean all of the issues, all of the issues that we care about are going to be determined by who wins this Supreme Court race. I take a look at issues that concern people. And again, I'm very, very careful as to how I, you know, frame the responses that I give. But I try to tell people, you know, some of the issues that people are extraordinarily concerned about, 
have to do with gerrymandering and people's ability to actually have their vote count and have their voice being heard, just how important that is. And I tell people that my value is in a democracy, everybody's voice should be heard. And we talk about women's reproductive rights, another issue that I think is likely to come into our Wisconsin Supreme Court chamber. And I tell people that my personal value is that that is a woman's right to choose, that a woman has the right to make that decision. I can also tell you that at the point that I decided to get into this race, the Dobbs decision had not yet been rendered, but it was no surprise to me um, how that decision came out when mm -hmm. it finally was rendered. Mm -hmm. It was no surprise. I can also tell you, quite frankly, that my opponents on the right, if either one of them are elected, either one, that 1849 abortion ban will stand. I can absolutely guarantee that. And then let's talk about some other issues. Let's talk about the presidential election of 2024. I think everybody knows that the results of the 2020 presidential election came into our Wisconsin Supreme Court chamber. And we all know that the state of Wisconsin has extraordinarily competitive races, just so competitive. And I think that it's likely then that the results of that 2024 Supreme Court race are gonna end up in our chamber as well. So I talked to people about the fact that we need change, we need common sense, that absolutely everything we care about is going to be determined by who wins this seat. And then finally, I tell people that we have a Supreme Court that has seven seats on it. This is a critical, critical race because we have the opportunity to have a majority of four to three justices who actually follow the law and uphold the Constitution as compared to the far right-wing extreme jurists on the right. They're just so partisan. And so, you know, I would be honored to be able to join, you know, Justice Ann Walsh-Bradley, Justice Karofsky, Justice Dallet, people who actually want to follow the law and uphold the Constitution. And so those are really, um, the reasons that I decided to run. Thank you. Thank you for sort of laying that all out. It shows how comprehensive and how many issues and 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 things are potentially impacted by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It's when you talk to people, what are people's reactions to to that sort of intro? I I wonder do people realize the role that courts play in our everyday lives maybe they realize it more now that um the dobbs case decision came down which um overturned roe v wade but what are the what are the responses that you're getting from the community when you go out and talk to them um it's absolutely astounding hmm. um a week ago friday i went on a loop i was in barneveld and then I went to Mineral Point, and then I went to Spring Green, and then I went to Mazelmany. And we had full houses at every single one of those venues. And when I drove from Barnabal to um, Mineral Point in the snow and snow plows, I thought, I wonder how many people are going to be in Mineral Point today. And I think probably close to 100 people in wow. the upper level of an art gallery. So huh. concerned about all of these issues that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Mazomani, I didn't know that there's a group of very active women in Mazomani called the Mazomani Muddlers who are 
stopping people and working so very hard to get the vote out. Spring Green, also incredible. And so that was really interesting. And then last weekend on Saturday, I started my morning in Richland Center. People extraordinarily invested and interested in Richland Center. Then I went to Viroqua, you know, um, big turnout in Viroqua. And then I drove to Prairie Duchene and talked to people. People have the same general concerns everywhere I go. And that is about how critically important it is to save our democracy and how critically important this race is to elect a justice who is fair and impartial. You know, I talk to people about that and I say our Supreme Court should be different than the other branches of government. There should be decorum, there should be integrity, there should be respect. You should feel as though you can walk into that Supreme Court chamber no matter who you are. Um, a homeless person to a very, very well-heeled person and be treated the same, that you're going to have a court that follows the law, upholds the Constitution, and just how critically important that is. Talk to me um, about your work as a prosecutor. You were a prosecutor on serious crimes, and as a judge, you've overseen criminal trials. How has that experience shaped your work as a judge on the um, circuit court, and how will it influence your work on the Supreme Court? Okay, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office was a tremendous place to work and prosecute cases because the credo never was go rack up convictions, never. The credo was every morning when you went to court, and I'll tell you, this is from when I started in misdemeanor court, and you take that big pile of files to court, you are always tasked with every morning, go and quote, do justice. That's what we were told, go do justice, go do the right thing. It's not about how many convictions you get, it's how people are treated, it's what you do to keep the community safe. Um, we have funded, you know, in the district attorney's office in Milwaukee, they work very hard with drug treatment courts, fat prints treatment courts, having the ability to give people deferred prosecution agreements and diversion agreements. And um, I expect Carousel as a practicing attorney, you probably are familiar with what some of those um, options are, but, yes. for, but for your listeners who aren't, mm -hmm. I would say a diversion gives a person an opportunity before they're even charged with an offense to meet some conditions and not have a case charged. And why that is so helpful to a person is that that matter never hits CCAP. Anybody who looks at it is never going to see that that person had a criminal matter that was, you know, resolved short of coming to court. A deferred prosecution agreement's a little bit different. That case is charged, and then a person has to meet a number of, convic of conditions and if they successfully complete those conditions, typically the case is either reduced or it's dismissed. Um, again, being very, very helpful to offenders, obviously not violent offenders, but offenders that we want to work with to, you know, hold accountable, but keep out of the system and help get back on their feet. So, you know, we had so many options there. I am very hopeful with the budget surplus 
that we have, that as a Supreme Court justice, I can work toward other initiatives and funding other courts across the state where people can continue to be helped. And I think that is critically important. I, I mean, I love what you're saying here at the end. Talk to us about what are some of the things that you can do as a judge to sort of continue that seeking justice, that perspective that you took with you as a a prosecutor to to make sure that our criminal justice system defends the rights of victims, but also is a place where people feel that they have access to justice and their voice can be heard. Yeah, that's critically important. You know, I spent two years as a judge in a very high level um, drug court. And, you know, we dealt with people who unfortunately were addicted to drugs and we did our absolute best to give them deferred deferred prosecution agreements and be able to give them the ability to have a case dismissed or amended and get them treatment along the way. That was our goal, to get them treatment. Um, it was hard being a judge in that court because mm-hmm. I would see somebody come in and we would get the deferred prosecution agreement drafted. And I might find out a month and a half later that that person overdosed. And it was very, very challenging for the people that were addicted to those controlled substances. Then we had the you know, the high-level dealers who um, really needed to be held accountable. And I think sometimes people look at that CCAP and they see, oh, look at that, that person got, quote, too good of a deal on a drug case. Well, a lot of those people get that deal because they're testifying against people up a couple levels in the food chain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're not containing that in the court record because <laughs> personal safety is um, critical as well. And a lot of these people are very dangerous. So, you know, it was really good to have an opportunity to be able to, you know, share with people different options for treatment. I handled domestic violence cases for a year, and we would do probation reviews um, one Friday a month in the afternoon. And I had guys who I never thought would want to go to Batterers Anonymous or any other treatment classes. And I always had prizes for them and their kids in the courtroom. And these men, and I say men because generally it was the men that, you know, were not saying women weren't committing domestic violence cases, but generally the numbers were, it was heavily skewed male. And they would come in and they would say, this is the first time I had the opportunity to talk about some of these issues Hmm. and why I started acting out in the way that I have. And I never thought I'd want to go to this small group and start talking to a bunch of people about it. And you look at the path that they went through and, you know, the transformation that could occur. So, you know, I think we have these courts, we have these options, we don't have enough options. And the more options that we can have in, and I want to make sure everybody understands what I'm saying, in cases where the community is not at risk, because obviously dangerous offenders need to be held accountable. But we have, um, I think, so many other options and things that we can do for people across the board to make them productive members of the community 
and hopefully not see them in our criminal justice system again. We're talking right now with uh, Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge Janet Protasewicz. She is running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd Carousel, love to hear I can't from you. hear you. Oh, no. Jade, can you hear me? Everyone okay? Can I get a thumbs up from anyone? Now, now I can hear you. I, oh, the, last, the only thing I could hear was, can I get a thumbs up? Oh, no. Okay, good. Well, now I can. I'm glad you can hear me. Um, let's try this again. Hey, everyone. We are talking right now with uh, Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge Janet Protasewicz. She is running for Wisconsin Supreme Court. And we would love to hear from you if you have a question or comment or um, anything that you want to contribute to the conversation, we would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And you can, uh, Jade is in the studio, Ashley's in the studio, they're ready for their messages. Um, you can, they'll patch you through to us or you can pass a message on to them. Any way you want to join us would be great at area code 608-256-2001. Janet, you talked um, a lot about the importance of um, is restoring integrity to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and saving our democracy. Talk to us about what role judges can play in fostering public trust and integrity uh, in our judicial system. So I think that a person's judicial philosophy is really critical in that regard. And, you know, I think judges need to absolutely understand that we are frequently dealing with an underserved population and people who are below the poverty level and people who maybe don't have reliable transportation and um, have a lot of issues that cause them problems. So one of the main concerns that I have always had was people's ability to get to court, um, mm. people's ability to get there on time. You know, in domestic violence court in Milwaukee, and I don't know how it is in Dane County, we would set 20 to 30 jury trials a day. And different judges handle that in different ways. You know, we would do a big calendar call and see if the state was ready to go on their cases. And some courts would call those cases if the victims had not yet, you know, checked in, those cases were dismissed. I was always a big believer that we wait, we give them a chance to make sure that they have the opportunity to get there. I mean, we have people who don't have cars. We have people getting kids to school and getting kids on a school bus. Just, you know, the little things. And we start with those little things that we can do to make it a better experience for everyone across the board. So everybody knows that they're treated with respect and with kindness and you know, to the defendants as well. And, you know, I, I did three years in homicide and sexual assault court. I've dealt with some very, very, very challenging and dangerous defendants. But my goal always was, you know, you need to be treated with respect. You're going to be held accountable, but you still absolutely need to be treated with respect. And, you know, a lot of these people, their family members come into court during their sentencings. You want them to see a sentencing where the judge actually treats everyone in the courtroom well. I mean, that's so critical. And, you know, you hear so much about government employees, too. And what you hear about government employees are, you know, it's a bureaucracy and, you know, they check in, they check out, they don't care. Well, we, we don't do that in my courtroom. 
you know, we, everybody goes the extra mile. You know, I'm in family court now. Yeah. I walked in the other day and my clerk had a person on the speakerphone for about a half hour. And I said, who are you talking to? And she said, I was just listening. That was the mother of one of the child pornography offenders that you sent to prison. And she just wanted to call and said how upset she was. And I told her, well, I can't put you on with the judge, but I'll listen to you. And so she talked to her for, you know, a half an hour. Um, we, we, we always try to go the extra mile. And I think if courts do that, it gives people a much, um, much needed breadth of being, you know, feeling like the court system works for all of them. I really appreciate the sort of the acknowledgement of, you know, life outside the courtroom that, right, you get there, you have a busy calendar. You Like you said, you have dozens of cases before you. But to acknowledge that people, you know, court is really can be really traumatic and overwhelming for people on all sides of the of the case in criminal and in family. And to, to make sure you have a moment to acknowledge that these are complicated emotional days and these are complicated emotional people that that have other challenges getting to the court. I, I really appreciate hearing you talk about that because I don't see that in every courtroom that I go to. No, I don't see that in every courtroom that I've observed either. But, you know, I was raised without um, many means. And, you know, I kind of know what that's like. And every morning I get up and I can have a nice breakfast of whatever I want and I can drive to work and I can park in my protected parking and go into the courthouse. And mm -hmm. I am so very well aware that many, many of the people that are appearing in my courtroom don't have that same experience in the morning, just getting there. Mm -hmm. And then that's the starting point. And then we go from there. Right. 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 Talk to us a little bit more. I know you've already outlined so many of the constitutional rights that are important to you. And, you know, you you talk about the importance of protecting our constitutional rights and then candidates, um, you know, more politically to the right of you talk about protecting constitutional rights. And yet you're, you're talking about two for, two different things. What does protecting constitutional rights mean to you? Well, you know, here's the thing. The circuit court is really, you know, I, I would say that we are, quote, you know, we're in the trenches. We're dealing with cases every single day and trying to get the rulings right. We're doing everything from sentencing people and, you know, exercising our discretion to the best of our ability. But we're also, you know, having to apply the law, you know, in all sorts of matters, in motions, in, you know, all day long doing trials, but you know, in evidentiary motions, in a fourth amendment motion, you're listening to the evidence, you're applying the law and you do the best that you can. And then the next level of the courts is the court of appeals. And the court of appeals is really an error correcting court. Anybody who appeals a case from the circuit court has an absolute right to go to the court of appeals and have the court of appeals look at it and see whether or not the judge got it right. And then there's the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is very, very different. The Supreme Court only takes, you know, a small percentage of the cases that it is asked to review. And it takes cases where there are particularly important cutting edge issues that affect the citizens of the state. Those are the kind of cases they take. 
So yes, you uphold the law, you follow the Constitution, but you're really also developing the common law when you're a Supreme Court justice. You're hmm. developing hmm. the common law. You know, if the answers were always so black and white, you know, there wouldn't be so many four to three decisions, right? <laughs> so the answers aren't always that clear. But, you know, you know, I think what's going to happen is, you know, there's going to be some issues. Maybe Act 10 will be relitigated. You know, I was talking to the New York Times about Act 10, and they asked me point blank, do you think that that decision, um, you know, violated, you know, the Constitution? And I said, well, think about it. The dissent in that case was beautifully written and argued that, in fact, um, the Constitution was violated. And I'll tell people right up front, I agree with the dissent in that case. And, you know, there's going to be all sorts of other potential constitutional issues that will be becoming coming before our court and the justices will have to make decisions, you know, based on the law, based on the Constitution, based on developing the common law. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you, um, Judge Portisiewicz. Can you, um, in our, our final moments here, can you tell us a little bit of how people can learn more about your campaign and meet you on the campaign trail? As You were naming off all those cities that you've been throughout Wisconsin. That's just great to, to hear that. How else can they um, learn more? Well, you can take a look at JanetForJustice.com. That's my website, JanetForJustice.com. It's being updated on a pretty continual basis and kind of will give you an idea, might give you an idea of where I'm going to be. I'll be in Madison next week, actually. I've been spending a lot of time in Madison as well. Well, we love to have you. Well, I love it, and I've been loving all the food that I've been able to have there, um, particularly at the Marigold Cafe, which has become my favorite place to spend time. But... um, JanetForJustice.com, we update the endorsements. We have over a 1,000 endorsements across the state. Justice um, Rebecca Dallet endorsed my campaign at the very beginning. Justice Ann Walsh-Bradley just came on this week, and we are absolutely delighted. And so information that you may find interesting, you can find right on that website. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you again, uh, Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge uh, Janet Protasewicz and candidate for Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice. Thank you so much for running for office and for joining us today and talking about your campaign and vision for Wisconsin. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, that was Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge uh, Janet Protasewicz. And now for the second half of the show, we're going to take a quick uh, music break and then we're going to come right back and talk with former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly. Really excited to talk with him. Hello, everybody, and we are back on the air. I want to remind you, you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird, and we are continuing our conversation with the candidates on the primary ballot that's coming up in two weeks on Tuesday, February 21st. And today we are talking with two of the candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court. And our next uh, judge that is joining us today, candidate, is former uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly. Hello, Justice Kelly. Hello, Carousel. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It's great to have you. And we had you back in 2020. And that was such a 
delightful conversation. I'm really glad that you can join us again today. Um, oh, thanks so much. And I want to let people know a little bit about you. Um, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly was appointed to the Supreme Court in 2016 and served uh, four years on the Supreme Court. And in 2020, he founded Daniel Kelly Consulting and became a senior fellow at the Institute for Reforming Government. Justice Kelly worked in private practice, civil litigation, attorney in Milwaukee, and he has been a member of the Federalist Society, the Wisconsin State Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, and the President. Council of Carroll University. Um, so, hello, Justice Kelly. You, you, and you, you, you want to be back there? That your year, your time on the Supreme Court didn't um, persuade you from wanting or jade you from wanting to be part <laughs> of it. Talk to us about your vision for Wisconsin and why you want to um, run for the Wisconsin Supreme Court again. Sure. Thank you so much. Well, I think there's uh, two to go into that. The first is uh, that it was the greatest professional honor of a lifetime mm. to serve the people of Wisconsin as one of their Supreme Court justices. And I loved every minute of that. In fact, before I went to the court, uh, a good friend asked me, uh, are you sure you want to do this? And I kind of looked at him quizzically and said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> what did you have in mind? And he says, well, you know, uh, you got to think about what it's going to be like. You're going to be in chambers uh, almost every day, all day long, all by yourself. You're going to be reading. You're going to be researching. You're going to be writing. And I'm like, this sounds like heaven to me. So I just loved doing the work of the Supreme Court. The other piece of it was that, uh, you know, I understood that all the authority that I used as a Supreme Court justice did not belong to me. It didn't even belong to the office. It belonged to the people of Wisconsin. Hmm. And they simply loaned that to us, right? And that's so we are using borrowed authority to decide the cases of Wisconsin. And that sets up a, a, a really important relationship between the people of Wisconsin and those who serve them in state government. And it is the relationship of boss and servant. And so, uh, so one of the other things that led to uh, that really being an enjoyable period of service is I had the greatest bosses a guy could ever have. Mm. That's the people of Wisconsin. So then as far as uh, uh, running uh, to go back to the court, over the last couple of years, uh, I've been traveling around the state of Wisconsin and I've been lecturing on the proper role and function of a judiciary within a constitutional form of government. And one of the things I came across uh, very frequently was uh, people telling me that they wanted to make sure that the next Supreme Court justice is someone who has a long history of being faithful to the original public meaning of our Constitution and understanding the limited but important role of the court. And they said that they saw that in me, and so they asked me to run. And after so many of the invitations to run to go back, uh, you know, I uh, consulted with our 3 a.m. friends, right? The, the friends you can call in the middle of the night and they'll mm -hmm. take your call. Uh, and then praying with my wife and our family. Uh, and uh, we eventually came to the decision to, uh, to answer uh, my fellow Wisconsinites' request that I run again. And I'm really intrigued by the fact that you've, you've had these sort of 
scholarly conversations of what is the proper role and function of the ju- judiciary. What what have you come to believe is the proper role and function? Yeah, it's um, so it goes back again to the idea that Wisconsinites have loaned authority. And so they didn't mm-hmm. do it in one undifferentiated mass. They said, we're going to split it up into three areas. We want the legislature to make our laws. We want the executive branch to carry them into effect. And we want the courts to do one thing, just one thing. And they say, please concentrate on this. Do a good job on it, but it's just one thing. And that is to use existing law to decide their cases as those come before the court. And that's it. So they tell us um, we're not interested, uh, you folks in the judiciary, we're not interested in whether you think our laws are good or wise or effective. We're not interested in whether you think you can do it more effectively or efficiently. Um, We just want you to faithfully apply our laws to the extent that they are consistent with our Constitution and just do that one thing every day that you are in office. And they tell us that if they uh, if they have concerns about the wisdom of their law, they'll go have a conversation with the legislative branch. And so the role of the court uh, really is confined and defined by the Constitution as it has been adopted and maintained by the people of Wisconsin. And it's to do just that one thing. Use the existing law. Don't make it up. Don't ignore it. Don't change it. Just use the existing law to decide cases. I really appreciate that analysis because I think so many times you uh, hear a law or or think about a law and you go, oh, my God, they wanted to do this, but why don't they do this part or that part? You you know, sort of the the Monday morning quarterbacking of the legislative process. And, of course, judges are human beings, too. Of course, you have thoughts of, wow, this would have worked better this way or that way. But but the restraint that you have to to not play a legislative role, even though your job every day is to read laws and analyze laws. Do you think that that's something that um, is common in many judges, that they're able to differentiate between the two? Well, I think there's um, there are two schools of thought Hmm. on what the court's role is. So one of them is the one that I just explained. The other school of thought is that the courts, um, maybe they start with the law but then uh, they get to impose their own personal beliefs or values uh, in the way that they decide cases. And that's, a, that's much more of an activist view of the court. And I don't think that that's legitimate uh, because, uh, again, our Constitution divides up the authority, and the authority to make law belongs to the legislature. So if a jurist ever finds him or herself in the position of saying, look, I see what the law is, but I've got a better idea, uh, and we're going we're gonna to use my better idea to decide this case rather than what the law actually says, then you're venturing outside of the constitutional boundaries for the actions of the court. Hmm. Now, for those who do understand the limited nature of the court's authority, uh, I think there's a way of doing the job that will help you squeeze out all of your personal preferences and personal politics out of the decision-making process. And so what I do when I uh, analyze a case or write an opinion, uh, I always begin with the, the law that's applicable to the case, whether it's a constitutional provision, statute, regulation, common law, whatever it might be. And then you use rigorous logic to move from that, those are the premises, use rigorous logic to move 
from that all the way down to the conclusion. And when you're done, you should be able to look back and see an unbroken chain of logic between the conclusion and the premises, the law. And if, if, if you can, if there's no break, that's your guarantee that the conclusion is commanded by law and is not infected by the jurist's personal values. Hmm. So that's the goal, I think, of a good jurist. And I think that's, uh, that's a very effective way of doing the job so that you can, so you can effectively set aside your own personal desires and values and judgments. Justice Kelly, I was reviewing um, our conversation back in 2020 and was noting the sort of vast and variety of litigation experience that you have, how how it really was a highlight of you when comparing to other judges that maybe don't have that level of variety. How do you think that experience helps shape your perspective on the Wisconsin Supreme Court? I think it keeps uh, keeps me fresh. Uh, I am boundlessly curious about the entire body of law. So, uh, so one of the things I um, enjoyed a great deal in my private practice before coming to the court is that I was able to address just a large um, number of types of cases, whether it's uh, and it's mostly within the business context, but it goes all the way from contracts to UCC. Uh, to real estate uh, development, uh, municipal governance. It's just that there's a broad sweep of law, and it all fascinates me. So I fell in love with the law when I was in seventh grade, and that's just never changed. And so I really look forward to opportunities to uh, address a broad array of issues. And as it turns out, that's exactly what you need to do as a Supreme Court justice. Because any area of law in Wisconsin could potentially come to the Supreme Court as a case. And I think um, if you have insatiable curiosity, uh, that is a, uh, is a good attribute. It's a, real, it's a really good tool uh, when it comes to doing the work of the court. So, uh, so I'm always looking forward to looking at specific issues uh, that perhaps we've not looked at before um, and just uh, going through the entire expanse of our law as we address that case by case on the Supreme Court. When you go to your website, you talk about how you're a defender of individual freedom and a constitutional conservative. What does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the phrase constitutional conservative, I think that's really important uh, uh, to understand correctly. So conservative sometimes uh, gets confused with politics, but the phrase Constitutional conservative means that my priority is conserving the original public meaning of our constitutions. And so it is, it's meant to express a commitment uh, to, the, uh, to the text of the Constitution and being faithful to the people of Wisconsin. So that document, that Constitution, belongs to the people of Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard sometimes that uh, some jurists say that they uh, – you know, that the Constitution was written in a different age and with a different society in mm-hmm. mind. And so they say the courts have to update that as, uh, as society changes. But, you know, the genius of the framers was that they provided for how the Constitution could change. So in the United States Constitution, Article 5 uh, governs how that document changes. And in the Wisconsin Constitution, Article 12, governs the same thing. 
And so what they provide there, and I've looked at it really carefully to see if it sets out any role for the court in changing that, those documents. And it doesn't. It just, it does not give the courts any authority whatsoever to change them. So the people of Wisconsin, the people of the United States, have uh, reserved to themselves the right to change the Constitution in conversation with the legislative branch of government. And so, uh, so I think that's, uh, I think that's one of the real, real key aspects of being a constitutional conservative is respecting the people of Wisconsin enough to say, um, they are wise enough that when the Constitution needs to be changed, they can do it. The United States Constitution has been amended 27 times. Uh, Wisconsin Constitution has been amended only enough times that I can't even remember how many <laughs> times. Uh, so, you know, they, but they've shown they know how to do it and that they hmm. will do it when times change enough that the Constitution has to be updated to reflect that. So constitutional conservatism means respecting the people of Wisconsin and the document that they created and that they maintain and allowing that document to dictate the work that we do rather than setting ourselves above the law. Does that mean when you're interpreting a law, you look at the year a law was written? Or how mm-hmm. do you... Okay, so that comes... So even... Not talking about the Constitution per se, but if a law that's before you in a contract case is a law from the 1950s do you look at the circumstances around the 1950s or you how how do you do that sort of intellectual review and application of the law without you know being in the 1950s yeah absolutely so as you know um language has a tendency to change over time yes the way that we use certain words we you know we adopt new words we discard others. Um, so language has a, has a tendency to change over time. So when we go to a, a specific constitutional provision or a specific statutory provision, uh, the first question has to be, uh, what do these words mean? Uh, what were they understood to, be, to mean at the time that they were adopted? Because when a legislature acts, it is, um, it, it is conveying a full thought to uh, to the people of Wisconsin. It's not a uh, empty vessel. They're not saying, here's some words, uh, fill in some meanings some other time, or you know, take some meaning out of these vessels and put in other meaning. Uh, they're not saying that. They are, commit, they are communicating a specific idea to the people of Wisconsin. So our job as jurists is to figure out what was that meaning. Hmm. So if, it's, um, if the language has changed over time, what we do is we go back to the time that the statute was adopted, go back to when the, uh, the question, uh, uh, if the question is one of constitutional law, we go back to when the Constitution uh, was adopted or when the amendment was adopted, and we figure out what was the meaning at that time, because that is the, that's the law that was enacted. It's not, um, it's not us reading new meaning into old uh, old words, we take those old words, we say, what was it communicating to the people of Wisconsin when it was adopted? And that's what we apply. And so uh, that's the only way, really, of, of maintaining the rule of law. If we allowed uh, jurists to to say, well, I've got, uh, I've got a different meaning for this word. I know it meant something different when it was passed, 
But I got a new meaning for it. And the new meaning uh, leads us to conclusion A, whereas the old meaning would have led us to conclusion B. Um, it's illegitimate for the court to substitute uh, uh, current meaning for the meaning of the language when it was actually adopted. Because that's what people uh, are accountable to. They're accountable to the meaning of the law when it was adopted. So it's, uh, it's really important for the jurist to be faithful to that in every case they address. We're talking right now with Justice Dan Kelly. He is a candidate on the February ballot for Wisconsin Supreme Court. If you would like to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Jade and Ashley are in the studio ready to take your call and patch it through to us. The phone number is area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, Justice Kelly, I want to ask you about um, integrity and... um, public trust in the judicial system. Do you think that there is public trust in our system and what role can judges play to uh, ensure that there is? Yeah, I think traditionally the courts of the, th- of the three branches of government, I think that the courts have traditionally enjoyed the greatest level of trust. Um, and I think that's accountable to uh, to one thing in particular. Traditionally, the courts have understood the, the proper boundaries uh, in just applying the law. And so people look at, uh, at the jurist and they say, well, it's pretty easy for us to tell whether you are doing the job we set out for you. Let's take a look at what you do with the authority we've provided to you. Are you making stuff up? Are you uh, ignoring uh, the law? Are you trying to change it on the bench? And as long as they can see that you're not doing any of that, then they have confidence that justice can be found, and then they'll have, you know, they'll have strong confidence in the court as an institution. So that calls, gets called into question, however, when, uh, when jurists step outside of those constitutional boundaries. So if they start getting innovative and original with what the law should be, rather than paying attention to what the law is, then people start having concerns and real worries because they know that if the court is making the law, then we're looking forward to chaos. So every time, uh, I I think um, it's best to kind of think of it in in this way. Every time a case comes before the court, it's addressing something that's happened in the past, right? So there's there's a contract that was breached. There was a statute of uncertain application Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a tort, an accident, whatever it might have been. And uh, so the court is always looking backwards in time. And it's looking at things that have already occurred. So um, the only way that people can have trust and confidence in the court is if it looks at the law as it was at the time those events occurred and use that law to resolve the dispute. They get concerned when the court looks backward and says, well, I know what the law was then, but I got a better way of doing things. And I'm going to make up a law now, and I'm going to apply it to things that happened in the past. And people understand that's just fundamentally unjust, and it leads to chaos because you never really know then what law is going to be applicable to your actions. Hmm. Because hmm. If, a, if a court can always look backwards and change the law in retrospect, then it deprives people of the ability to plan their affairs according to what the law requires because they'll never know what the law is. So, um, so I think that as long as the court 
is uh, staying within its constitutional parameters, confidence will remain high. Uh, but when, uh, when uh, jurists or candidates to be on the Supreme Court come along and say, uh, well, I, uh, I've got personal values that I think I should be able to implement in the courts. Well, that's, that's a frightening thing because what it's suggesting is that that jurist would substitute uh, her views, her values, substitute those for the law. And uh, that would throw us into chaos because we would never know what the law is until you go to court and the jurist tells you what her values are related to that case. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the courthouse being a place where everyone is welcome and um, allowed. I, I know we've talked yeah. about this with some of your other, um, uh, some of the other candidates running for office. And uh, I, I work as an attorney and sometimes I represent low income people who, before we even state the merits of our case, whether we win or lose, they already are concerned about going to court thinking, oh, the court's never going to rule on my side. These aren't people that know what it's like to be poor, know what it's like to be me. How do we make sure that the court system is a place where everyone thinks that they're, they have a fair shot at, you know, fighting for what they think is right? Yeah, I think it's um, being consistent in applying the, the law in every single case without fear or favor for who the person is or what the issue is, right? So the, uh, so the promise of equal justice, the promise of justice, period, is that anyone can come into the courthouse to plead their case, and the jurist will, uh, will seriously look at the facts of the case and will conscientiously apply the law as it exists. Because regardless of, uh, of who you are, uh, we're all answerable to the same law. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one of the one of the primary uh, uh, foundational principles in our form of government is no one is above the law. And uh, right behind that is the equal protection of the law. It doesn't matter who you are. You, everyone gets equal protection of the law. And so as you enter that courthouse, uh, you will uh, you should be confident that your case is going to be heard just the same as anyone else's case is going to be heard, and that it will be decided on the same basis as anyone else's case. It will be decided on the law. And to make sure that people have that confidence, that that depends an awful lot on who that person is wearing that black robe and whether Mm -hmm. that person has made a commitment to, in every single case, setting aside his or her own personal uh, politics or views of what the law ought to be and is committed to simply applying the law And whether you are rich or poor, uh, regardless of what social group you belong to, uh, that should raise your confidence. Justice Kelly. The courthouse is open to provide justice. Justice Mm -hmm. Kelly, I hate to cut you off. We are out of time. Uh, Quickly, uh, is there a website or someplace where people can learn more about your campaign? There is indeed. JusticeDanielKelly.com. That's one E in Kelly. (laughs) JusticeDanielKelly.com. Fantastic. And thank you so much thank for you. having me on your show. This has been delightful. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate talking with you, Justice Dan Kelly, uh, candidate for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Thank you, uh, Jade and Ashley, for all your great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again next week. W O R T 9.9 FM, Madison.